I think we'll, we'll go ahead and get started. Thanks very much for coming up today on the really rainy Tuesday. Um, we have with us Michael Stevens to speak about what's a very timely topic of the GCC intervention in Yemen. And uh, Michael is a research fellow for Middle East Studies and head of Rusi Kalparaba. He joined uh, Rusi's London office in September 2010, um, first in the National Security Program, and now is working in international security studies. Um, he spent of time throughout the Middle East um, and, and the Gulf specifically, and uh, you may recognize him from his many appearances kind of on throughout the media. So, um, so yeah, without further comment, I'll let him go ahead and get started. Thank you. <coughs> um, first of all, thank you very much, Courtney. Thank you to the LIC Kuwait program. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, at uh, the main rival of my university when I was growing up, because I was a King's London boy. Um, so we would always look down on the intellectual endeavors of the LSE students, but I, I'm happy to see such a big turnout here um, for this particular uh, very timely moment, um, which really has accelerated in the last 48 hours. I think those of you that follow uh, Yemen closely will know that there is now a major offensive ongoing in the city of Taiz, uh, which is the third city in Yemen uh, and the capital of the central region. Uh, and a lot of what I'll be talking about today, um, the title is the, the GCC intervention in Yemen. I, I prefer to say Saudi-led. I think that um, it's a much more accurate reflection, really, of what we're seeing um, in terms of military deployments on the ground, political leadership who is coming to the fore of uh, discussing and leading uh, on military issues, political issues, and security issues. And it's not just the GCC, of course, that's involved uh, in military activity in Yemen. What we have is a number of different countries, primarily 10 major countries, uh, and a number of smaller allies and some supporting uh, assistance given by Western nations, which has led to um, this ongoing campaign that we've had since the 26th of March this year. Um, what I'm going to do is talk a little bit about the strategic raison d'etre uh, for Saudi Arabian action in Yemen, why it's taken the decision it has, and reflect on some of those reasons uh, why Saudi Arabia took the decision to go in in the first place and why it decided to build a coalition around it in order to build international support and legitimacy for its activities. Um, one thing I would say is that the amount of effort put in to build that international support, uh, which crossed a number of different boundaries and fragmentations, particularly within the Sunni Arab world, um, is now beginning to show signs of eroding, uh, which shows you to some extent that perhaps Saudi Arabia should have spent a little bit longer investing uh, in its alliance structures before it took the decision it did um, as Yemen looked to be sliding towards further chaos. But I think I want to take you back. Um, to just over a year ago, really, uh, to the events, um, two major events, really, one regional, one very local to the Yemen conflict itself, or what became the Yemen conflict. Um, and I think it's a, a perfectly reasonable starting point to suggest that the announcement uh, by the P5 plus one, um, that there would be an interim agreement uh, with the Islamic Republic of Iran, has set into motion a number of different policy tracks uh, and changes inside the kingdom of Saudi Arabia uh, and confirmed to them things that they had been often saying to us that they were worried about, uh, which was a sense of alienation 
uh, from those countries that they had particularly felt were invested in the kingdom's long-term security. The kingdom, of course, has favored stability as a modus operandi in all of its foreign policy choices. Now, how you define the word stability depends on a number of things. This can mean an interventionist Saudi Arabia at certain times, uh, and it can mean a Saudi Arabia which tends to stand well back from events at other times. And actually, what we see in a file like Syria, for example, um, are the Saudis mixing both of those up together. Um, it was not until late August of 2011 that the Saudis actually made any public statement whatsoever about Bashar al-Assad, preferring to see which way the winds were blowing, before larger tectonic plates began to move Saudi action and Qatari action in particular in that field. But I want to zoom back to Yemen before I get sidetracked. I think it's very important to understand that the Saudis had been, over a number of years, worried about increasing engagement between the West and the Islamic Republic of Iran. This was reflected firstly by Turkey al-Faisal uh, in a meeting in May in 2011, uh, just up the road here at uh, RF Molesworth, in which he told a number of NATO generals that if the West and NATO didn't do something to stop an Iranian nuclear program, Saudi Arabia would start to look at other options outside of its purview. Uh, it would become more activist. It would become more aggressive. It would seek to define its national interest in the way that it alone could define. And at the time, many people didn't take this very seriously. Turkey Faisal was outside of the ruling elite. He was seen as a plausibly deniable idea tester, somebody that could say something to the Western world but deny it quickly because he wasn't part of the inner sanctum anymore. So these warnings were not taken too seriously. An op-ed appeared in the New York Times just two months after that, written by Nawaf Abed, who is closely affiliated with Turkey Faisal, in which he basically announced the same policy. If you do not do something on a number of files, this included the Palestinian file, of course, this included Iran, it included the growing problems in Syria, then we, Saudi Arabia, will have to do something to look after our own national interests. Two more op-eds, one written by Turkey Faisal himself, appeared in 2012. Again, there was not much attention paid to the warnings that were coming out. And actually, if we look back, activities such as we are seeing today were being telegraphed quite some time ago. It were warnings that the Saudis were deeply unhappy with the regional status quo. They were deeply unhappy with regional insecurity. And this is before ISIS came onto the scene, ladies and gentlemen. This was before terrorist threats re-emerged inside Saudi Arabia's own borders. And so what we had was increasingly under the last years of King Abdullah a country which was looking primarily at a region that was starting to fall apart, that was starting to become a space for Iranian activity to take hold, as it was perceived in Riyadh. So we look at Iraq under the control of Nuri al-Maliki. The Saudis still don't have an ambassador in Iraq. That was pulled out quite some time ago now, and it doesn't look like it's going to be reestablished anytime soon. Syria had all but collapsed. The Iranians, by 2012, it was very obvious, were invested heavily in propping up the regime of Bashar al-Assad, operating largely in Sunni areas where the revolt was strongest in north and central Syria. And the Saudis began to feel that their national interest in those two countries was being eroded by Iranian activity. Then, of course, the Kingdom of Bahrain, which saw protests breaking out in February 14, 2011 was the scene 
of almost unacceptable domestic unrest to the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, just 16 miles from its eastern shore. Again, the West stood back, allowed the protests to happen, didn't support the Al-Khalifa in its attempts to quell the unrest, supported the mobilization of the Al-Wafaq party, something that hardliners in the Gulf were loath to accept as a legitimate political force. Of course, what we saw one month later, following a series of failed negotiations in Bahrain, were the Saudis moving in National Guard units into Bahrain to stabilize the country. They are still there, ladies and gentlemen. That was the first sign that the Saudis were looking to do something more activist. Was it easier to do? Yes, absolutely it was. But it was the first sign that the Saudis were starting to say, hey, on these issues, if the West isn't going to lead, we're going to have to do something. We're going to have to fill the space. We're going to have to lead from the front. And if the GCC doesn't like it, well, they'll have to lump it. Increasingly, we began to see a much more paternalist attitude from Saudi Arabia towards its GCC allies. A strong GCC is a Saudi-led GCC. When we are together, we are stronger. But what that meant was in the definition of Riyadh's national security parameters. So this framework was already appearing before we see the events of September 2014 in which the Houthis marched into the capital in Sana'a. Saudi Arabia was already beginning a shift in mindset in where it felt it was starting to engage in regional competition with other actors. Sub-state actors were the biggest threats to Saudi Arabian national security because they represented potential islands of Iranian activity. And so this particular issue in Yemen looked exactly to policymakers in Riyadh like what we see with the Hashd al-Shaabi in Iraq, what we see with the militias in Syria, what we see with Hezbollah in Lebanon. And in the Saudi mindset, the Houthis, albeit a long-term enemy of the Saudis, and one in which the Saudis had engaged with in 2009, and had seen six previous wars between the government of Yemen and the Houthi-led factions, suddenly began to fit into a larger mold, a mold in which the Saudis were becoming less compromising, were becoming less able to accept those potential islands of activity for Iranian expansion becoming realistic actors in their own right. Now we can go into the minutiae of what happened when and the chronology of how the internal politics of Yemen works, which actually is far different from the Sunni Shia paradigm that I'm alluding to here, or even the Iran-Saudi Arabian paradigm that I'm alluding to. But at that particular moment, at that particular site of regional destabilization in Sana'a, as President Hadi struggled to forge a consensus between the different political parties and the Houthis gradually increased their stranglehold on Sana'a throughout the winter of 2014 and early 2015, the Saudis were looking on in increasing horror. Not only that, they were worried that the only actor which was really taking a lead in Yemen was the UN. And the UN was not able to mobilize force quickly. There was not able to be a universal Security Council resolution authorizing force to intervene led by the West, in conjunction with Russia, in conjunction with the Chinese, in conjunction with France and Great Britain. And the Saudis felt very, very alone all of a sudden. The Houthis, of course, took the capital and very soon, within the space of a couple of months, had marched all the way down through the cities of Ibtaiz and even down to Aden, pursuing the fleeing President Hadi, who had been propped up by a GCC-sponsored process from 2012 and it looked like his legitimacy was eroding. The Saudis very, very quickly put together a coalition within the space of a month 
and serious shuttle diplomacy to all different capitals of the Middle East put together quite incredible, actually, diverse range of actors. Those actors are some of them at loggerheads with each other. For example, Turkey and Egypt brought into supporting or at least not opposing the Saudi-led operation. Those two countries are not on speaking terms. They do not share ambassadors. Yet on this particular issue, Saudi Arabia was able to bring them together to a position where despite their own internal security problems and their own belligerence towards each other's, other's regional policies, they were able to buy into the same policy led by Riyadh. We saw some flip-flopping. The Egyptians thought they were going to go in and didn't. The Turks thought they were going to go in and didn't. But the main thing for Riyadh was that there was no major regional blocks of opposition to its decision to intervene in Yemen. And in that case, what Riyadh was doing was building a political consensus, if you like, a counterbalance to Iranian political consensus in the region, which under international relations theory you might conceive as balances of power in the sort of Ken Waltz neo-realist argument, but actually that probably is true. I would say that that framework is very, very apt for the type of diplomacy that we saw Saudi Arabia engaging in in early 2015. Regional rebuilding of balances of power, trying to tip the weight back against the Iranians, pushing back against their perceived expansion. And this is particularly given impetus under King Salman. I would say one thing that I think had King Abdullah still been alive, I think you would still have seen a Saudi Arabian intervention in Yemen. I think that was more or less the consensus decision amongst senior princes. I don't think that just because Salman has perhaps a more tolerant view of the Muslim Brotherhood uh, that we saw this rapprochement between uh, Saudi Arabia and Turkey, or that we saw a lessening of close ties with Egypt. Actually, I think this is a far bigger question. On issues to do with regional balances of power and deterrence vis-a-vis -vis Iran, those issues matter less. It was simply the ability to build that coalition that Salman showed an aggressive pragmatism. What do I mean by aggressive pragmatism? Which was simply that join the coalition, support us, or there will be consequences. So Riyadh persuaded, cajoled, but it also hung the sword of Damocles over its friends' heads as well. It was not all done through good faith. But this shows you, and it's something that the Saudis have been very keen to stress in my discussions with them over this past year, their ability to lead in the region. In the absence of hegemonic American influence and the destabilization of the region in general, what you see are the Saudis aspiring to regional leadership. And this is what we term now the Salman Doctrine. It was first coined by Jamal Khashoggi, I think back in April. But this movement towards a more aggressive, assertive Saudi Arabia, less apologetic to its allies, more willing to use military force overseas, is being termed the Salman Doctrine. And I think it is an apt doctrine to describe what we're seeing now under the new regime. There are a couple of other reasons why, as the Houthis uh, solidified their control over Yemen, that Saudi Arabia, at least at the regional level, was looking to intervene. One of them was quite clearly to expunge the shame of the 2009 partially failed operation against the Houthis in 2009. And this is, though this is not clearly articulated in the press, it's very clear when you talk to Saudis that there was a need to prove to themselves that they could do it. 
if we are going to be a regional leader, we have to be able to deploy extraterritorial outside our borders for sustained periods of time using military, using diplomacy, using all the means at our disposal to be able to sustain long-term operations overseas. That's what a regional power does. That is how we show our strength. Not only that, if we are able to show ourselves as successful in the Yemen conflagration, in the operations in Yemen, then we might be sending a signal to who? Well, to Bashar al-Assad. If we can deploy successfully in Yemen overseas and we can finish that particular operation off, what's to say we couldn't deploy through southern Syria? At the time, of course, there was no inclination that Vladimir Putin would order the inter intervention um, of the Russians as he has now. I think that particular calculation that was going through the Saudi minds of being able to prove to Bashar al-Assad that actually, if we get this right, we're coming for you next, is now rendered slightly moot by this need to not be in direct confrontation with the Russians. Um, although I would say that Riyadh has looked at other alternatives um, to punish the Russians in a soft power way and uh, feels particularly burned after um, the Russian intervention. Uh, Riyadh had spent a number of months trying to get uh, Moscow closer to seeing its view on the world, offering quite a lot of uh, incentives uh, in Syria to bring Moscow closer in. And I think that relationship has now become adversarial once again, um, despite uh, Saudi flexibility behind closed doors and Bashar al-Assad, they will maintain a couple of policies which I think are very clear. One is the low oil price, designed, of course, to hurt both the Iranian and the Russian economy. There is also the additional issue of squeezing out U.S. shale, but at the regional level, these are the factors that drove the policy, and it's why the Saudis are insisting on keeping this oil policy up. They're pumping out at 10.6 million barrels a day at the current stage. They don't look like bringing that down anytime soon. Um, and whilst the head of Aramco has been saying this is to squeeze out U.S. shale, um, U.S. Shell is finding more cost-effective ways to produce. So there are more political reasons, I would suggest, for the oil price being the way it is right now than just moving out U.S. shale markets. And I think that in particular is designed to show both Iran and Russia that Saudi Arabia is a player in the world stage and you cannot mess with it. If you stand against its national interests, it will hurt you. And it's not going to apologize to anyone for doing so. So after building this regional coalition, which included uh, a number of GCC states, of course, um, the exception being Oman, and I'll come to Oman in a minute. Um, the Saudis have led a campaign which I would say is very mixed in its success. Uh, I think that the early stages of the campaign where the Saudis were very easily able to pick up military targets with very little signals intel we saw quite a high ratio of uh, uh, military degradation of Houthi and Saleh forces. There was quite clearly uh, an ability to hit ammunition dumps, which are usually stored outside cities, tank columns, artillery columns. Having said that, once the strikes ramped up to about 125, 130 days, which is quite significant, we began to see after about six weeks a very, very clear pattern. They were running out of targets to hit. The Houthis were getting better at hiding what they had. And the casualty rates started to skyrocket. And so what we suddenly saw was a period where Operation Decisive Storm was changed to Operation Restore Hope, a PR shift to reflect in some ways the failing strategic objectives 
that the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia had set out with its coalition partners. And unfortunately, I think, as this air campaign has gone on, it has become less and less uh, of a strategic um, boon for the Saudis and more of a strategic burden. And I would put it to you that now, as the number of military targets has reduced significantly outside of major populated areas, uh, the number of casualties and collateral damage is skyrocketing. Um, I think there's absolutely no uh, question uh, that a number of Western allies are now very concerned um, about the effectiveness of the air campaign. I think there's no question um, that the support of the United States and the United Kingdom in particular uh, in the military field in which uh, we as the United Kingdom had supplied uh, Paveway 4 missiles to the Saudis for use on uh, their tornadoes uh, and the Americans had supplied uh, a number of different types of weaponry but numbering in the tens of thousands. Um, that conversation has become more difficult. And I think the effectiveness of the military campaign has slowed dramatically. The only exception being Operation Golden Arrow in Aden, which was the uh, offensive where two things really began to become quite clear. One, that the Saudi-led operation was not a purely Saudi-led operation. It was also Emirati-led. And two, finally the GCC was understanding that if you have to go into a war in Yemen, you cannot win it from 30,000 feet. You have to be involved on the ground. It was the first time that either the UAE or the Saudis admitted that there were special forces and uh, troops uh, on the ground fighting uh, alongside the various different militias in the south. So a general downward trajectory after the first six weeks. A little bit of an uptick uh, in late July and August uh, when Golden Arrow clearly was able to establish a foothold in southern Yemen. Um, but once again, I'm afraid to say, we're seeing a bit of a downward trend. We've seen the offensives in Marib uh, to the east of Sana'a stalling quite badly. We've seen the offensive in Ta'iz become a bloodbath. I'm afraid to say over 1,600 people now have died in the battle for Ta'iz. Um, and despite the last 48 hours, I don't see it being clear at all who is going to come out of that particular battle on top. So the military operation, I would put it to you, has had very, very mixed success indeed um, and should be regarded um, as hindering um, political solution at the current time. I think all sides have understood that they cannot fight themselves to a solution, the problem being that nobody seems to want to back down at the current stage. And so what we have are what looks to be stalemated conflicts to the east of Sana'a and to the south, in which neither side is clearly going to win, but they will expend more men and resources uh, in what is increasingly becoming an attritional battle. So the GCC-led operation, despite the influence of the Emiratis, which gave it some push, uh, is now uh, struggling quite severely. And I would suggest to you that although it will not fail, it will also not succeed in its stated aims. And I want to talk just briefly about what those stated aims might be from the GCC. Um, Adel al-Jaber, the Foreign Minister of Saudi Arabia, has been very clear that he wants to see a political solution. We have a Geneva process, which largely failed. Uh, we have uh, a restated uh, set of conditions from the Saudis that the Houthis must accept UN Security Council Resolution 2216. The Houthis accepted it, which meant that they had to withdraw from all major cities, lay down arms and enter negotiations. Of course, the Houthis accepted 2216 and then kept fighting. So 
We're in a situation where almost weekly now the Houthis will accept Resolution 2216 uh, in a political game in which they are trying to bat the ball back to Saudi Arabia to make them look like the aggressors. Um, I would put it to you that at this current stage in uh, the conflict, both sides uh, are responsible for the ongoing conflict. Uh, neither seems to be able to back down and pull uh, the necessary levers uh, to be able to get a peace solution. I want to talk a little bit um, about what that peace solution might look like and also some of the issues of GCC solidarity that might be pulling that potential peace solution apart. The GCC tends to be very nationalistic, uh, controlled media, um, and what we've seen is no different in the context of the Yemen conflict. Uh, those countries which have deployed in Yemen, uh, that being uh, Qatar, Bahrain, UAE, Saudi Arabia, and some Kuwaitis, um, have all been extremely verging on jingoistically supportive uh, of the war in Yemen, painting it in rather large brushstrokes as a war against Iran-backed terrorism and destabilization in the region, a war of no choice, almost a war of obligation. And if you've spent any time in the UAE in a view, you will see the extent to which UAE media has been trying to say that this is a war of necessity. And what is interesting, of course, is at the moment, the casualties sustained by GCC forces have been accepted by their populations as necessary in the fight against Iranian-backed terrorism. The tribal sheikhs and leaders of the UAE, Saudi Arabia, and even in Qatar, who has actually uh, lost its first soldier very recently, um, have been very quick uh, to meet with the families of soldiers who have been killed. They've been very quick to pay compensation. They've been very quick to show their support uh, for the troops and in some cases go right down uh, to the border of Najran and Yemen uh, and uh, to show their increasing uh, desire to be part of this nationalistic fervor themselves. They're actively involved in maintaining the nationalist rhetoric. And so what I think we have is a sustainability at the moment, at the present time. But I would put it to you that it is not that clear how long that could be sustained. If the offensives in Ta'az and Marib continue as they are for the next six months, it will begin to ask questions within those ruling elites as to whether this is actually strategically, one, worthwhile, two, likely to lead to a political solution, and three, will it be, of course, supported in the long run by their populations? Uh, and I think those questions, although they have not arisen yet, I have begun to see in my own research the beginnings of cracks in the debate, beginnings of questioning as to whether the strategic value of military operations and having our boys on the ground in Yemen is actually paying off in terms of um, paying back all this effort with the retrenchment of the Houthis and, of course, accordingly, of Iranian influence. Here, however, that nationalist rhetoric hides something very interesting. And the internal dynamics of Yemen are also reflecting the internal dynamics of the GCC. If you look in a place like Ta'iz, one of the reasons that the operations in Ta'iz have stalled is because a large part of the anti-Houthi movement has become Islahi and Muslim Brotherhood. Uh, there are some Salafi brigades there as well. Some people term them Al-Qaeda, but I think that's a, a misnomer. Um, and of course, 
the UAE doesn't like the Muslim Brotherhood very much. Qatar, on the other hand, does. The Saudi Arabians have decided to be pragmatic and deal with Islam, bring them closer, uh, both politically and strategically, whilst the Emiratis have worked assiduously, particularly in the Taiz Offensive, to stop heavy weapons going to those groups. Because political Islamism for the UAE is the number one threat in the region, particularly related to the Ikhwan. So what you're seeing are cracks within the GCC alliance, reflecting some of their own differences in the region. And this is going to hinder any major political solution quite severely, because it is quite clear that Islah is one of the main parties that operates not only in Sa'iz, but is also to be found in Ib, in Sana'a even. There's a large Islah contingent there. If you want a political solution, these people will have to be dealt with. Ali Mahsan al-Ahmar, who is the uh, number two to, uh, or was the number two, to Ali Abdel Saleh, the former president, and runs what is called the, the first division, or division one, of the Yemeni Ahmed uh, Corps, and has deep Islamist sympathies, um, is largely in control of large swathes of military activity uh, in north-central Yemen, will have to be dealt with. How do we engage along those fronts? And this is where I think the GCC plan looks very, very thin indeed. And we're actually, whilst I have raised quite significant concerns about the military operation, I have even deeper concerns about the nature of the political solution and the political planning that is going on in Riyadh and in conjunction with GCC partners. And here, of course, the differences with Oman are also clear. Um, if you go to Muscat these days, the hotels are filled with Houthis. Uh, the Saudis actually have allowed overflight rights of their territory for Houthi planes to go from Sana'a to Muscat uh, to meet with American officials, various Emirati officials, Saudi officials. But what is clear is that the Omanis are also trying to not be part of the consensus that the GCC is pushing. I was talking to an Omani only an hour ago who was telling me that the decisions were very, very clear that we do not want to be seen as the country which intervened in Yemen. In our history, we do not want that scar on our record. The Yemenis are our brothers. We share tribal links with them, and we do not want to be part of a GCC framework which has brutalized the Yemeni people. Brutalized the Yemeni people. This is a GCC partner saying this. So we've got two fissures that we can quite clearly adduce from the political frameworks. One, of course, is the Omani strand, which is a more amenable strand towards the Houthis, understands that there may be some Iranian influence in the process. And we've got the other strand, which is the Muslim Brotherhood Islamist strand, in which Qatar and the UAE have once again revealed that their spat that opened up in 2013 and 2014 has not yet healed. It's very obvious that there are some Islamist groups, in fact, it's known that there are some Islamist groups in Taiz that are receiving aid from Qatar charity, at the same time as the Emiratis are withholding heavy weapons from such groups. So we see an inconsistent GCC policy. How this leads to a political solution, the answer is I do not know. I do not know how the GCC countries will be able to come together on this particular front to be able to sponsor a, co uh, a national dialogue, a government of national unity, any kind of framework peace agreement coming up in any future negotiations. So the question, of course, and I'll wrap it up from here, and um, we can start to get into the discussion, is 
where does the GCC see Yemen going? Where does the GCC envisage Yemen being in five years? Does it see a land of endless conflict, a land in which perhaps the Houthis will always be fighting for control, backed by their Iranian masters, against Yemenis from central, eastern, and southern uh, provinces and governments um, in a sort of existential struggle for ideology. I would put it to you that the answer is not so simple. I think that Saudi Arabia has intervened in a conflict in which there were many internal struggles, primarily over resources. Some were tribal, but primarily over resources to do with access to central funding from the state. And that had been ongoing since the reunification of the country. And it's only been exacerbated now. Some of the conflict that we're seeing, where GCC forces are on the ground in Ma'arib, some of the conflict we are seeing there between the Houthis and local Ma'aribis, and Al-Qaeda even, is to do with access to the state and historical grievances that Ma'aribis have about central, central Yemenis and northern Yemenis coming and dominating them, taking their resources and giving nothing back. That particular conflict is not about Iran. Again, in Thais, we have the same issue. In Aden, we have the same issue with the Hirak southern separatist movements, who are not particularly interested in buying into the narrative of Iran and Sunnah and Shia. They simply want two things. And this was clearly elucidated at the National Dialogue, in which neither the Houthis or the southern separatists were ever represented adequately, which has led to some of the problems that we've seen today. One, we want more control over our own affairs, and I think that is reflective across a number of different cities in Yemen. We don't want the northerners in control. We don't want the Sana crowd in control. The Zaidi, they call it the holy city, the Zaidi holy city controlling us, right? That will always be a factor in Yemeni politics in which the Saudis have begun to interfere and try to rebuild this state. So looking forward to a long-term political solution, the Saudis will have to understand that the only solution for Yemen would have to be more decentralization from the capital, possible confederal autonomy for one or two different regions, including Aden, maybe even Hadramaut, maybe Ma'arib. We haven't decided, there hasn't been any decision on that process yet. And whether, of course, there can be some sort of sharing agreement in Sana'a, perhaps where you have a president, President Hadi, reinstalled in power, but weakened so as to give more power to a ruling council around him. That seems to be a general framework that was accepted. Unfortunately, as the war has dragged on, this plan to create a council around the president seems to be stuttering and faltering quite rapidly. And we've seen entrenchment of positions amongst the Yemen's different factions. There doesn't appear to be any push by Saudi Arabia to bring these factions together to offer compromises along some of the key lines that Yemenis feel matter most to them. So I'm afraid to say I'm quite disappointed in the lack of political outlines and pathways forward. And part of this talk was to talk about pathways forward for peace. I don't really see any at the current time. I'm afraid to be... Sorry to be depressing, but at the moment there is no leadership coming from external sources that Yemenis either accept or think can bring them closer to a peace agreement. So 
With that uh, slightly depressing note, I will um, close my remarks and welcome your questions.